Well, good morning. My name's Dave, and I'm one of the pastors here. It's great to be together on this third advent of Christmas. And uh, yeah, this morning, it's my pleasure not only to be able to bring the message this morning, but to pray together as a church family. So why don't we do that now? Let's bow our heads. Father, I'm so grateful for the rich time that we've already been able to have together as your gathered people. Thank you so much for the songs that we've been able to sing, to reflect on your generosity in our lives, to hear uh, just a, a taste of what the children will be bringing this evening. Um, and we just thank you that all of, all of this goes in honor and praise of you because you are so worthy of all the glory and all the honor and all the praise, more than we could give. You're such a good and loving God. We thank you for your kindness in our lives, Lord. We confess to you, God, that we have not always walked according to your ways, that even this week there have been times in which we have failed, that we have not loved our neighbor, or even ourselves as you call us to. And Lord, our biggest shame is that we have not loved you every moment of this week with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength as you call us to. But we are so grateful for your mercy and your forgiveness in our lives, that you never leave or forsake us, that no matter where we go, no matter what we face, there are no heights, nor depths, nor anything in all of creation that can separate us from your love and that you give us the chance to come back to you again and that you extend us your mercy and forgiveness. Lord, we have so much to be thankful for. And first of all, I'm just so thankful for my church family. I just thank you for my brothers and sisters and for the young ones and for the older ones. I thank you for my brothers and sisters from a whole variety of different countries that are represented here in this room that speak different languages, that have experienced the goodness of God in such diverse cultures. And thank you that you are making our church family here, Calvary, uh, to represent the beauty of God that is seen throughout the world. And I pray that you would continue to build up our church and that we would be welcoming of people from all different nations and that we would learn to live and grow together um, and help us to overcome the challenges that might bring, but to see the beauty in the diversity of the people that you have made, who are made in your image. And Lord, we pray for our brothers and sisters throughout the world, and we ask you, Lord, that you would watch over and protect them. We pray for nations who are at war, God, and we pray that you would bring a ceasefire, that you would bring your peace. And in the meantime, would you watch over everyone, not just the women or the children, not just the civilians, Lord, but would you protect those who are involved in the fighting, Lord, and those who are the decision makers, Lord, would you convict them to search for a better way, but we know that in the meantime that there will be wars and that there will be hardship in this world. And so that's why we pray, Lord, would you return? We sing 
that we wait for the coming of the newborn king. We no longer wait for the coming of the newborn king. He has been born. We wait for the return of the king. And we pray that you would speed your return. We long for that day. And in the meantime, would you find us faithful? We thank you and we love you and we praise these things in Christ's name. And all of God's people said, amen. Well, I have to tell you, uh, if you've ever been to this Costco over in Port Coquitlam, there is a lady that works there that Andrea and I, we have to be very mindful of. You see, she's one of those people who hands out samples or she displays some of the products that are available only for a limited time. And you may not think that there's anything remarkable about this woman, anything that causes her to stand out amongst the dozen of other people who work there handing out samples at Costco, but you would be wrong. You see, I am able to easily push my cart past any number of sample tables without even a second thought of stopping. I scoff at those others who line up just waiting for like half a pizza bagel to come out of the toaster oven as if they've never tried that before. But when it comes to this woman, Andrea and I have to plug our ears and push our cart running to the next aisle before her siren song lures us in again. I cannot tell you the number of times, or perhaps I should say, I do not want to tell you the number of times that this woman has convinced us to taste and see what she has to offer is good, and we end up taking it home. How she can wax lyrically about the cleaning powers of pink solution. It will take stains out of anything, making them whiter than snow. Or she will extol the virtues of the Blendtec blender. Friends, it is true. It can not only crush ice, it can make smooth peanut butter out of peanuts. You can even make hot soup right in the blender. It will change your life. <laughs> Do you now see how wonderful this woman is at her job? Right? She not only has got me to believe, but she has me also trumpeting and extolling the virtues of blending too. But that's what happens when you find something so fantastic. You cannot just keep it to yourself. You want to share it with others and give tribute to how good it really is. And that's just what we see in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2, which recounts the birth of a baby in Bethlehem. Now, babies being born, they're always special occasions, but not necessarily exceptional. Babies are born all the time. But this is no ordinary newborn. The virtues trumpeted about this child, they are unmatched. His coming not only changed things for his parents and the world, but for the entire cosmos. And what we see in this account is that those who believe the message about this child, they not only become converts, but also evangelists and worshipers. They proclaim and praise because Christmas is good news. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Luke chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 1 to 20. 
It says, in those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. When they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. And she wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly hosts appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. And when the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. And when they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about the child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. Well, the story starts out for for many of us in very familiar fashion. Caesar declares a census, and because Joseph is a descendant of King David, he and Mary travel to Bethlehem, also known as the city of David, in order to register. Imminently, upon their arrival, Mary, who's pregnant, she goes into labor. Joseph looks frantically for some place for them to lodge and have the baby, but there are no vacancy signs hung on all the motel doors in Bethlehem. Grumpy innkeepers shut doors in their faces until finally one offers a stinky, dirty barn out back for this poor woman to give birth to her child. Upon coming into the world, the baby Jesus is swaddled, laid in a trough, while the drummer boy plays his best for him and the ox and donkey keep time. Now, most of what I've recounted to you is familiar. Much of it has also made its way into our depictions of our nativity scene. But some of what I've just recounted to you is not found in our Bibles. I find it unhelpful, and it also mischaracterizes people, including citizens of an entire city. And I think it's important that we correct our view of what the Bible says happened at Jesus' birth. Because I believe it takes a good story, and it makes it even better. Now, the first thing that we need to know is that Middle Eastern culture, such as the one in Bethlehem, is renowned for its hospitality. 
This makes it highly unlikely that Joseph and Mary were planning to stay in a hotel when they got to Bethlehem. But because of no vacancies, they somehow had to settle for a barn. Now remember, Joseph travels to Bethlehem, which is his ancestral hometown. Certainly, he would have had relatives there who would have gone out of their way to make room for him and the pregnant Mary. Mary herself has relatives that are nearby who would have also gladly housed them. Mary's cousin Elizabeth and her husband Zechariah, they live in the hill country of Judea, where Mary had just gone for a visit. Bethlehem is also in Judea. And Elizabeth and Zechariah certainly also would have put up Joseph and Mary. Now, our Western culture doesn't really value or practice hospitality like Middle Eastern cultures do. Yet, I know that if I were to travel to Germany today to visit some place over there, I have some very distant relatives that I've only met a couple of times that even then they would insist on me and my family staying with them and they would actually be deeply offended if we did not. But in Israel, which is an honor and shame society, where showing hospitality was strongly tied to having honor, this is even more important to understanding this story. Where we might ask the question, is it wrong to turn someone away for the night if you don't have a room for them? They would ask the question, does it bring honor to show hospitality? Or maybe even a more uh, specific question, is it shameful to turn away a pregnant woman about to give birth? Perhaps if that answer isn't obvious to us, we should sit with that question for a while, even in our own context. Would it be shameful to turn away a pregnant woman who's about to give birth? I think so. And at that time, in Bethlehem, even perfect strangers would have gladly accepted Mary and Joseph into their homes because showing hospitality, it's all about honor. Just because it would be unusual or awkward in our society to take strangers into our homes for the night, showing this kind of hospitality in that culture wasn't only a common occurrence, it was expected. Now, there are a couple of other things that indicate that we might have an incorrect uh, rendition when it comes to our nativity scene. First, it's that late-night-arrival imminent-birth myth that has so deeply ingrained itself into our story. Verse 6 says that while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. It doesn't say that they arrived in Bethlehem with Mary's contractions already only a few minutes apart. We have no idea how long they were there before Mary went into labor. The time could have been spe- the time is not specified and they could have been there for days before the birth happened. Surely they had been there long enough for Joseph to have found them adequate shelter. But then some might ask, but then why does the Bible mention the manger? Or why about this talk about no room at an inn? 
Let's tackle the idea of a lack of vacancies at the end first. The word in Greek for room, as in there's no room for them in the end, is the word topos. This word can be translated room, but it's not referring to a bedroom or hotel room, but rather it refers to a space. Like if I had books all over my desk, I might not have room for my laptop. It's not referring to a hotel room. Second, the Greek word katalima, which older Bible translations have described as an inn, but newer ones translate this as guest room. It means place to stay. And it refers to a room reserved for guests that was built on top of the home, homes such as the ones found in Bethlehem. There was a much more common word for an inn or a motel that Luke could have used if that's what he had meant. Now, the only other place in our Bibles where this Greek word katalima is used is found in Luke 22, where Jesus tells Peter and John to make preparations for the Passover. There he tells them to say to the owner of a house, I think we have that text on there, that the teacher asks, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? Where is the katalima where I can eat the Passover with my disciples? And then he says, that man will show you a large room upstairs, all furnished. Make preparations there. So chances are, Joseph and Mary are staying with relatives, or perhaps even in a stranger's home. But there is no space for them in the upper room that is usually reserved for guests. And it could be that there are already guests staying in this part of the room. They might also be in town because of the census. So Mary and Joseph then would have stayed in the main living area of these two-room homes, the large room in the basement, and then there's that guest room on top. In that large room where they would have stayed, that would have been meant they were staying with the rest of the family, where the family did their cooking and their entertaining, where they ate and where the whole family slept together. And one part of this large room was always cordoned off in the evening to house animals. Israelite vill villagers would bring the animals that they owned that they kept tied up in a courtyard in the evening, uh, in the, during the day. They would bring them inside to this part of the room at night. They would do so for a couple of reasons. One, the animal would provide some heat to help keep the house warm in the winter. And second, the animal would be secured from being stolen at night. And there would be a feeding trough or a manger for the animal to eat from in that part of the house. And then in the morning, the animal would be let out into the courtyard, tied up again. The room would be slept, swept clean, and then it would be used for other purposes. So rather than being born in a cold, dirty, lonely co confines of a stable, it is far more likely that Jesus was laid to rest in a manger filled with fresh, clean straw in the warm and friendly confines of a Jewish home. Mary would not have been alone in bringing Jesus into the world. There is no way that the women of Bethlehem would have left this young woman on her own in this situation. I have so much confidence that there is no way the women of Calvary would let a woman face this kind of thing alone. 
they would have rallied around to support her, and there would have been experienced midwives there to help her. Perhaps you're wondering, why does this all matter? Or maybe you're upset, and you're like, why are you messing with my traditional view of Christmas? Like I said earlier, I think it's important because that we have this correct view of what the Bible says, and because I think it makes a good story, and it makes it better. If you want to know why I think it makes it better, ask any woman who has ever given birth to a baby, what is a better news? What's a better story? Giving birth to a child with your unqualified husband in a barn or surrounded by experienced mothers in a home? And I'm pretty sure I know which one they will say is better news. And it's important not only because it challenges us to get our biblical facts straight, but I think it also challenges our view of hospitality. It challenge us, challenges us not only to open up our homes for Jesus, but make room for him right in the heart of our homes and not just out back in the barn. I think it also reminds you and I of the importance of practicing hospitality as his followers. Those who opened their home to this couple that night never imagined that by doing so, they would be hosting the Christ child. And we also never know, never know who we might be hosting when we open up our homes to others, whether it's during the hustle and bustle of Christmas or at any other time. In Hebrews 13, it says, Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers, for by so doing, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. Speaking of angels, in the next part of the story, the scene shifts to these shepherds who are tending flocks in the fields near Bethlehem. Now, we've seen so far in our Advent series how an angel appeared to Joseph and then to Mary to tell them about the historic child that they were about to parent. And now an angel appears to shepherds and share with them some astonishing news. Something strange is afoot in Bethlehem. And we learned last week that it was surprising that an angel appeared to Mary because Mary was not a person of significance in Israel at that point. In the same way, it's even more surprising to see an angel appear to shepherds. As Daryl Johnson says, in the first century, shepherds were considered to be of low social standing. Nothing paid less than shepherding. Good people did not want to be seen with them. They were considered unsafe. Shepherds were despised and ostracized. They were the unclean. It is shocking that Luke says that these were the first people to hear the good news of Christmas. So one of the things that that shows us which, Luke, which Jesus confirms in the rest of the gospel, is the great reversal of God's grace. Jesus says in Luke 13, Indeed, there are those who are last who will be first, and the first who will be last. Angels appearing to shepherds reminds you and I that those whom the world has ostracized have found favor with God, that he has a special burden for those who have been marginalized. And the shepherd story also shows us that we don't need to climb a social ladder or any other ladder in order to get to God. Rather, the whole point of the Christmas story is that God came down to get to us. And when the shepherds see the angel, they react the way that most people do 
when they see these heavenly messengers, which is to fear for their lives. Verse 9 says they were terrified. Then in verse 10, the angel says to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all people. The angel tells them not to fear because he's not there to threaten their lives. However, this is not the first time these shepherds have been told of good news that has promised to cause great joy for all the people. That word, good news, which we often translate as gospel, is the Greek word euangelion, which means proclamation. These shepherds had heard similar proclamations like this before, like when it was announced from the palace that the royal couple had given birth to a son, they would announce the birth of this king-to-be as a euangelion from the palace that was to cause a celebration for the entire world. But those proclamations really weren't great news for people like these lowly shepherds or even the average person on the street. It was just another sign that their oppression would continue for another generation. But this euangelion, this proclamation is different. It is truly good news for these shepherds, for marginalized people like them the world over, and yes, it is even good news for those in palaces. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Do you see how the angel's announcement tells these shepherds not only something incredible about this baby, but he is telling them something very personal. A Savior has been born to them. He says, this will be a sign to you, specifically. You guys will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Make no mistake about it, this baby is born for the entire world, but he was born specifically for these shepherds. And he was born specifically for you, and specifically for me too. The angel then goes on to describe this baby's traits. First, he calls him a savior. That means that this child was born in order to deliver people from captivity or to rescue them. We all need delivering and rescuing. Delivering from our sins and rescue from death. Next, the angel says, that he is the Messiah or Christ. Now these terms, these are loaded terms, and they referred to Israelites, to the long-awaited anointed one that they had pinned their hopes on. This Messiah was prophesied in Micah 5.2, would come from Bethlehem, the city of David, which they are just outside of, tending their sheep. And finally, the angel calls him the Lord. This indicates this child's authority and royal status. He is the king. Not only are these attributes that the angel gives to this child astounding, but they are also subversive. Subversive to the kingdoms of this world that have already been established. Timothy Keller explains, Caesar Augustus, who decreed this sentence, 
the census that brought this holy family to Bethlehem, he claimed that he had brought justice and peace to the whole world. And he also declared that his adopted father, his dead adopted father, Julius Caesar, was a god. He said he was divine, thus making himself the son of God. Do you see then how the angel's description of Jesus totally is an affront to Caesar and what he has said about himself? Keller goes on to say that by describing Jesus' birth as a euangelion with these same titles that Augustus used for himself, the birth of this little boy is the beginning of a confrontation between the kingdom of God in all of its apparent weakness, insignificance, and vulnerability and the kingdoms of this world. But it is such good news And it is such good news, the angels can't help but proclaim it. And it is so excellent that it moves him to praise. And not only him, but all of heaven can't help themselves but bust out in some praise. Verse 13, suddenly a great company of the heavenly hosts appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. And that is exactly what a euangelion, a proclamation should do to all who receive it. It is so incredible that you cannot just keep it to yourself. You have to share it with others and pay tribute to just how good it is. You want to proclaim and praise because Christmas is such good news. Verse 15 says that when the angels left, the shepherds said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. Now that is a very good idea. I think it is always a good idea to check out the things that God has told you about. However, this story does provide us with a bit of a warning. Later on, after finding the baby, the shepherds, they went around telling other people about what had been told to them. And in verse 18, it says that those who heard from the shepherds They were amazed, but it does not say that they also went to go find the child and check things out. Now, perhaps the shepherds, they were more deeply affected than the people that they told because these shepherds, they had heard the message from angels, but everybody else, they just heard the message from, well, ordinary shepherds who did not have high social standing, they weren't educated, and they had no authority. But we also happen to be in a similar position today as those other people, right? The people in the Bible who heard God's messages, they often got them through what we think extraordinary means, a burning bush, an angel. They got to even hear from Jesus himself. While we, on the other hand, get some book and an ordinary, very human preacher. But just because uncomfortable truths come through an unimpressive messenger, that does not give us an excuse or a reason for ignoring it. We must beware of missing out on the message of God, even if its messengers are very flawed. Another thing we may wonder is, What gave the shepherds such great confidence that they would find the correct baby? 
certainly there would have been more than one newborn in the city of Bethlehem. N.T. Wright says, the reason the manger is mentioned three times in this story is that it is the sign that the angel told the shepherds to look for. Not because they were rejected from an inn, but the manger isn't important in itself. It's a signpost to the identity and task of a baby who is lying in it. And doesn't that make a lot more sense that Jesus was laid in a manger in order to give the shepherds a sign that they had found the right child rather than Joseph being some neglectful husband forcing his nine months pregnant wife to travel without making plans of where to stay or that the whole city of Bethlehem was filled with, un- with shamefully unhospitable people. Yet after they found this baby, verse 17 says, When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child, and all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. Now, in this final paragraph, we see three reactions to that night's events. We already talked about the one, the people the shepherds told, who were amazed, but we don't hear anything else. But then we also hear about the shepherds' reactions and Mary's. First, the shepherds who, after finding the Christ child, they respond the same way that the angel did. Right? The shepherds proclaim the good news. Verse 17 says, by spreading the word concerning what had been told to them about the child. And then in verse 20, it says that they praise, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen. And friends, this is the most natural thing that we can do when we find something life-changing. Not only do we become converts, but we also want other people to know so that their lives can be changed for the better as well. Now, I understand that this is a difficult thing to proclaim even this good news, whether it's our workplaces or our schools or even some of our homes. They can be unwelcoming to the good news of Jesus. Other times, each of us has fear of turning other people off by our witnessing to them. We're uncomfortable with it. We don't want to make them uncomfortable. And I'm not here to pressure you into evangelizing those who don't want to hear the gospel of Christ that you want to share with them. The first thing I think we should all be doing is praying, right? Praying for those people, praying for those places in our lives, and praying for opportunities to open up where we would have the courage to be able to share. But if and when someone does ask you, why do you love Christmas? Or why do you go to church on Sunday? Or what's the reason for the hope that I see in you? That's when we need to jump at the opportunity and tell others about the Savior, how he has changed our lives and the that he is also good news for them too. The second thing the shepherds did, the same as the angels that evening, is that they were moved to praise. They couldn't contain it. 
I love how in verse 20 it says that they returned, glorifying and praising God. It doesn't say that they went to synagogue or church in order to glorify and praise God. It says they returned, meaning they returned to work. They returned to their sheep. And while they were returning there, they were glorifying and praising God. This means we should be praising God wherever and whenever and however we can. Right? I love singing in church with you this morning. It was wonderful. But I also love singing to as I'm driving in my car to work. Probably more strange than that, I love singing while I'm riding my bike. And I tell you, I have got a number of strange looks by other cyclists as I pass them singing hymns at the top of my lungs. It's true. But we can and we should be looking for opportunities to give God praise anytime and anywhere. The other reaction we see in this story, besides the shepherds, is Mary, who once again is a wonderful teacher for us on how to respond to the things that God is doing in our lives and in this world. Verse 19 says, Mary treasured up all these things, and she pondered them in her heart. Timothy Keller says, When Mary pondered, it meant that she thought deeply. When it says that she treasured these things up, it means that she savored them emotionally. Keller goes on to say, If you do not do both of these things, ponder and treasure the word of God, you will not truly hear the message. Your ears will hear, but your mind and heart won't. It won't sink in, right? It won't comfort or convict or change you. The Christmas story, it is so familiar to so many of us. But perhaps the challenge for us today is to hear it again, or maybe even to hear it anew, to treasure it up and to ponder it in our hearts so that it will sink in and once more provide us with the comfort that some of us are looking for. Or maybe the conviction that others of us need or the life change that is promised to each of us in Christ. Maybe for some of us, it will challenge us to show uncommon hospitality this Christmas, like the people of Bethlehem did. Perhaps for others, hearing this again will strike up some passion and encourage us to proclaim it to others and praise God for it, just like the angels and shepherds did. Or maybe for you, this Christmas story, this is the very first time that you've heard this. And I want you to know that this is good news of great joy, not only for the whole world, but personally for you. A Savior has been born to you. The Messiah, the Rescuer, He has come for you. He is the Lord, the Son of God, who came to bring peace on earth. And you can begin to have peace on earth by making peace with God. And we do that through trusting Jesus. He came to forgive us of our sins and to reunite us with our creator. And that's the whole proclamation of Christmas. We sing, hark, the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king, peace on earth 
mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. There it is. Like the shepherds then, I would encourage each of us to go and check out these things that have happened. The things that the Lord has told us about. If you want to know more, I would personally be glad to share with you, as I'm sure many other people here who have known the Lord for a long time would also be glad to share. And I hope for each of us that we will encounter Christ, that we will experience his life-changing grace and mercy and love, and that we won't be able to just keep it to ourselves, but that we will want to proclaim it and praise him because Christmas, it is such good news. Would you stand with me and we pray, and I'll invite the worship team to come on up. Father, what a marvelous thing that you have done, sending your son, Jesus, to come to earth in the fragile form of a baby. What a marvelous thing that he grew inside this young woman's tummy for nine months. And that they got to care for him until he grew into a man. What an incredible story this is of God coming to earth and making, making his space among us. We are so grateful, so thankful for the wonder and the mystery of this story. I pray, Lord, that this would impact each of us so profoundly and that we would see the love of God in this story and that we would also long to share it with others. And God, I pray for us in our relationships, in all of our relationships, that you would help us to just find ways to express the goodness and love and hope of God through our kindness to other people, through our words, through our actions and our hospitality. And we, we love you and thank you for sharing that with us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.